You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. 1973, there was a song that hit the top 10. It's by the OJs. Title, For the Love of Money. Anybody in here know how that song starts off? Top of your head. Pop quiz. Final Jeopardy. How does the 1973 song, For the Love of Money, begin? Money, 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 money. Money. That's how it starts. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. I didn't know that that song hit top ten. But I also didn't know that that song is actually rooted in 1 Timothy 6.10. For real, Wikipedia told me this. You go to 1 Timothy 6.10, this is where the OJs got the content for that song that some in our culture know. Let me read this verse to you. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the OJs knew something about money. Uh, but I didn't hit the music scene in the 70s. I got into the music scene in the late 80s, and it wasn't until the 90s that I was introduced to some hip-hop so I'm more of a Puff Daddy guy. It's all about the Benjamins. Or bumping the notorious B.I.G. More money, more problems. That was more my flavor. Regardless of the music genre you grew up in, it seems to me that there are artists like the O.J.'s or B.I.G. who will write songs about money and the culture loves it. And you've got artists who will communicate themes about money through TV shows or movies, and there's no problem. And you turn on some politics, and you hear the news, and governments, why they talk about money till you want to throw up. But the moment old preacher boy decides to talk about money, everybody gets real upset about that and says, hey, bro, you need to stay in your lane. <laughs> Everybody else can get in that lane, but not you. I learned uh, early in my career, nobody likes sermons about money. Y'all don't like sermons about money. I don't want to preach sermons about money. The culture hates the church talking about money. I think... B.I.G. had something right. Not quite more money, more problems. Rather, more sermons on money, more problems. <laughs> well, here's what I think is actually going on under the surface. Here's what some of our elders have helped me to realize might be going on under the surface, even for some of you in here this morning. We don't like hearing that money is a deeply spiritual issue. We don't like that. We chafe at the idea that what we do with our money actually, actually evidences some of what our heart loves. We don't like that. 
And I'm saying we because I'm in the boat with you. I don't like that either. Most of us want to ignore that the way we handle money is actually an indication of our spiritual maturity. Too many of us would like to walk into church and feel really good about how much Bible we read or how much Bible we know or how, how much we'd score on a Bible test if we were given one, but not actually bring the concept of money into view. Good news for anybody here who is struggling spiritually with money. It's not just a problem for you. It's a disease we all have. And it's a disease that's been around for a long time. Abraham had this idolatry issue tempting him. So did Moses. It was there in Jesus' day. It is still with us today. For none of us are hardwired to want to use money for others' good. Nobody gets born thinking, I hope that I can, I can really powerfully be responsible for lots of people money, people's money so that I can give it away. None of us are hardwired that way. Instead, all of us are hardwired to want to worship the golden calf of wealth. And this morning, we're going to be talking about money because as is our style here, when the Whatever the text talks about, we want to talk about. And, and as it turns out in Luke chapter 16, Jesus has put a bullseye on money. And I'd be in big trouble if I skipped this one. <laughs> so we're going to talk about money because Jesus talks about money. I was hoping Luke 16 was a beautiful Mother's Day sermonette. <laughs> I go, bless all you mommies out there. The Lord had a different plan for us. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open to Luke 16 so you can, you can see what Jesus is doing here and how Luke has accomplished it. And as we walk through this sermon, if you find yourself thinking, I don't appreciate this sermon, Pastor. I don't really like what you're saying. Might I just remind you, I did not write it. I am just delivering it. So if you don't like who wrote the mail, by all means, you can let him know. He reads your thoughts. He knows your heart. And he is happy to receive any feedback you'd like to give him. My job is to deliver it. There's two parts in Luke 16. There's two parts in Luke 16, and we'll see those two parts in the first two points. The third in the sermon will be application. So that's where we're going. Three points, the first two directly from the text. Let's jump into point one, prodigals and money, 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 money. Prodigals and money. Look with me there then at verse one and see that Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's gonna tell them a story about a rich man. Okay, he's talking a story about a rich man. The rich man has employed a wasteful manager. The rich man has employed a wasteful manager. And as the rich man dives into his books, he realizes that his manager has been not handling the accounts properly. So in Jesus' parable, the rich boss confronts his manager says, you fired. But notice, the man doesn't have to take a cardboard box and, and he doesn't get walked out immediately. 
he still has a few moments, perhaps a few days before his job will be terminated. And so with this little bit of time he has left before his job is completely finished, verse three, the manager says to himself, man, I'm not strong enough for manual labor and I'm too proud to beg. So that manager shrewdly creates a plan to leverage his last few moments on the job to maximize his benefits once he's unemployed. Do you see that's what's happening in this story? Okay. So look at the shrewd manager's plan. Verse 5, he starts decreasing the debts of his master. Hey, you owed him 20 barrels of oil. Strike that, make it 10. Oh, you owed him 100,000 different bushels of wheat, make it 80,000, which leads the master, verse 8, look in the text, to compliment the manager. So rich man looks at his wasteful manager who he's fired and ends up saying, hey, that was actually quite wise of you. Good on you to think through this in your last few moments. And then Jesus connects the dots there in the second half of verse 8. Follow along as I read it. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The eternal dwellings there is Old Testament language for eternity, for heaven. And unrighteous wealth there in the original language is mammon. It's, it's just this word for earthly wealth. So, so use the money you're given on earth to set yourself up well for eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus puts his finishing touches then on this first point in verses 10 to 13. Explaining if we're not faithful with worldly wealth... Why, then we can't be trusted with true riches, heavenly wealth. For a person can only serve one master. You will either serve money or you will serve God. But you will not serve both. One of them will be your God. You can either worship God or you can worship money. Point being... If you are a forgiven prodigal, if you're a forgiven prodigal, you no longer serve money. You're to serve God by stewarding shrewdly, which is the point. I'd love for you to write that down if you're taking notes. Steward shrewdly. That's what Jesus is getting at. Man, if you have been a prodigal and you ran off to Vegas and you now have returned and the mercy and forgiveness of the Father is with you. And you now have this wealth. What are you to do? Steward shrewdly. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I won't be surprised if this story, this parable Jesus is telling, brings up a number of curious questions most prominently, why does a dishonest manager who seems to be cooking the books get a thumbs up from Jesus? That feels like he's stealing. He's violating one of the Ten Commandments. Two thoughts helped me. First, parables teach one main message. Parables teach one main message, so we don't have to press every parable in every different direction. They teach one main message, and this message Jesus has told us already is clear. It's to steward shrewdly. 
But the second thing that helped me was culturally, it was normal. If you're a manager of a rich man's wealth that you put a bunch of commission baked into what's been owed. And so culturally, I understand it would have been normal for the audience to hear in Jesus' story what the, what the manager's doing is cutting his commission off and just saying, you know what, I'm just going to give this to you at cost. I'm not going to make any money off it. I'm just going to cut my losses. But now he is ingratiating himself to those who he gave that, removed his profit from. Here then, from one of the commentators, Commentaries I read, the point at hand, the main takeaway. People should learn from the manager to use their wealth to make God their friend. So that when money is no longer of any help to them, God will receive them into his presence. People should learn from the manager and use their wealth to make God their friend. That's the point. Whatever you've been given, use it in view of eternity. And what I hope you're seeing then is Jesus here in Luke 16 has the foresight to encourage his followers to have thoughtfulness in their stewardship. Plenty of worldly people are shrewd with their money, Jesus says. We ought to be shrewd with ours and invested in the right places. And that's the point. That's what former prodigals do. But maybe you've been tracking with me and you think to yourself, why does he keep saying former prodigals? Because I'm looking at chapter 16, verse 1, and it clearly says disciples. So Jeremy, why do you say that this whole thing is about former prodigals? Here's, here's the context that I've waited until right now to explain to you. Undoubtedly, 16.1 is speaking to disciples. But remember, disciples technically is the, not the same word as apostles. So in Luke, he says disciples. He's meaning followers of Jesus. And if you've got your Bible open and you just go back one chapter to 15, maybe if you've got your Bible open, you can just scan up to 15. If you remember, Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. That's where it culminates. And in Luke 15, what sets that whole thing up in verses 1 to 3 is Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders are over on the other side going, can you believe who he's having to dinner? It's those people. And Jesus is welcoming the tax collectors and the sinners. And he tells this story about how God welcomes repentant prodigals back. And then he gives an invitation to the religious leaders at the end and saying, won't you come in to the party? That's Luke 15. And with that in mind, we then consider part of Jesus' followers at this point truly are former tax collectors who have a lot of money in their account, but they've come by it unrighteously. So then, how are former prodigals to handle their money with all of these tax collectors who are like, I want to follow Christ. What does it look like? Because I'm actually loaded. Here's what Jesus says. Steward shrewdly in view of eternity. That's how prodigals, former prodigals handle their money. That's the context. And with the former prodigals and their bank accounts sufficiently addressed, guess where Jesus is going to go in point two? He's now going to talk directly to the religious leaders, these older brothers from that Luke 15 prodigal son story that we looked at last week. Jesus is going to now talk to the Pharisees and their money. 
Pharisees and their money takes us to the end of this chapter. Pick up with me there at verse 14, where we see the Pharisees following that Puff Daddy song because they really love the Benjamins, don't they? (laughs) For after hearing Jesus' teaching on money, they were there as Jesus just explained point one. Do you see what those Pharisees are doing? Do you see that they're ridiculing Jesus? Back in chapter 15, back in chapter 15, one, mine says they were grumbling. Grumbling carries with it this idea of, you know, kind of stand on the sideline. That's what they were doing. Now it's turned to just straight up, I'm going to ridicule Jesus to his face. Your approach with money is ridiculous, Jesus. That's what religious leaders are doing. They're mocking him. So Jesus confronts them, 15 to 18. Jesus says to those religious leaders, God knows your heart. Even though you try to take the law and justify yourself with it, you should know the law and the prophets all the way to John the Baptist, that's what they were for. And now it's all about the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus clarifies, look, religious leaders, I'm not canceling the law, but you're wrong to try to use the Old Testament law to justify yourselves. See, the religious leaders should have been the first people to realize that the long-awaited Messiah was here. Jesus even mentions in verse 16 that there were some who were forcing their way in, which is Luke's way of saying, there are some so desperate for the kingdom of God, they're acting like bulldozers. And they're just like, I got to get into this kingdom and I will do anything it takes Nobody's going to stop me from getting through there. It's like the old Black Friday when Walmart had a TV for $99 and we're all at the doors like, you just let us have that thing. That's what there were some people doing to get into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, you should be like that. But they weren't. No, the Pharisees were rejecting. They were actually rejecting the law and the prophets, though they wouldn't have realized it. And, and Jesus, in a tragic case of irony, says... You religious leaders are actually guilty of adultery. You're guilty of spiritual adultery. That's what you've done. Spiritual divorce, that is, not only missing and disobeying scripture, but you're mocking me, the person that it's all about. See, case in point, the religious leaders, they would have thought that since they've got six figures in their checking account, that was evidence that God is approving of them. How do you know you're righteous? Well, look at my bank account statement, bro. Obviously, God's pleased with me because I'm loaded. What is more, those religious leaders would not have thought to steward their money in their account spiritually. Those religious leaders would have thought, yeah, God doesn't care what I do with my money because it's mine. Which is why they were not known for helping the poor and the powerless. Even though the Old Testament clearly says you should do it. This is how they were twisting the Old Testament. Two examples, case in point, Deuteronomy 15.7. The religious leaders would have known this, probably had it memorized. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. They read that and thought, no, that doesn't apply to me. Or Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. 
the attitude of the religious leaders then was to import onto the scriptures what they wanted it to say. That's what they were guilty of. And they used the Bible then to justify themselves along with the evidence of, look at my checking account and how well off I am. That is functional adultery, verse 18, which means Luke's intention here in this little verse is not to define all cases of literal divorce and adultery. There are other scriptures that can walk you through what does God's heart for literal adultery and divorce look like. This isn't particularly aimed at that explanation. Rather, this is being used to condemn the religious leaders for the consequence of not repenting of their sin was equivalent to spiritual adultery. Or excuse me, what they were guilty of is not repenting. The consequence for not repenting would be suffering and anguish, which is where Jesus goes in his story of verse 19 to try to get to the religious leader's heart. Look in the text. Jesus begins again with a rich man, reiterating the theme of this entire service. If he would have talked about Mother's Day here, we could have had a whole different deal, but this is Luke 16. And in this story then, we find a tragic reversal one with a rich man wearing very high-end clothes, it says. Modern day be Prada, Armani, Chanel. And he takes all of his high-end clothes. He probably puts it in some Louis Vuitton luggage whenever he travels. That's what this guy does. And he eats like a king from the text, eating sumptuously every day. It's a banquet. But at the rich man's gate, which we might think in our modern day... Um, in the rich man's cul-de-sac, there lay a man named Lazarus. Church, this Lazarus is not the same Lazarus that was raised from the dead, John 12. This, that's a different one. This, this is a parable. This is a story. But this man's name is Lazarus, and this man is in bad shape. He's starving. He's covered with sores. And he's in such bad shape that... Nasty wild dogs are around him, licking his sores. And, and even for us today, you're kind of like, oh, that's nasty. And, and that's exactly how the religious leaders would have been feeling. And, and they would have been thinking in their paradigm, clearly the rich man has been blessed by God because he's rich. And clearly Lazarus has done something against God because... He's so poor and miserable. But here's where Jesus' story would be like a haymaker to the chin for the religious leaders. For it turns as both men die. And the rich man is in Hades, which is the Bible word for the abode of the dead. The rich man goes to Hades while the Lazarus goes to Abraham's side in glory. And that is shocking to the religious leaders. That is offensive. Are you kidding me? The rich man's going to go to this hell? And in Jesus' story, look in the text. The two men can see one another. They can even talk to one another, though a great chasm separates the two. And the rich man asks Abraham for mercy. Verse 24. And church, would you actually look at verse 24? I want you to lean into this verse. Because this verse is scary. 
Look at 24. The rich man just wants a finger, just dipped in some water, and then put on his tongue. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking I might ask for a glass of water in that situation. He throw me a frozen water bottle in that situation. But this is scary. He just goes, I, just a drop of water would give me relief. Abraham, Abraham, can you just get a drop of water? I'm like, I'm having a hard time. And let that sink in. Because what Jesus is describing here really is anguish. And it's scary. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in a place where you just want somebody to dip a finger in water and that's all you... We don't think about this stuff. Or at least it seems to me, I don't think about this stuff. And we get real uncomfortable talking about hell. Jesus isn't uncomfortable talking about it. This is, this is serious. So the rich man has made a request and and Abraham speaks in verse 25, no, 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 don't you remember? On earth, you had all the comforts, and Lazarus had all the suffering, but now you're suffering, and Lazarus is comforted. The rich man's first request has been denied, but he has another request. Verse 27, well, if you're not going to bring me any relief, would you please... Send someone to tell my five siblings. Text says brothers. It can mean brothers and sisters. Tell, tell my five siblings. Tell them about this place. Abraham's response, verse 29. Well, they already have Moses and the prophets. Have them read the book. Because if they read the book, God's word... It will lead the lost to repentance. But the rich man presses back. No, you got to resurrect someone from the dead. Because they'll listen to that person, which by implication means, I know my brothers and sisters aren't going to read and believe Moses and the prophets. Abraham's final word. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't listen to somebody who's been resurrected from the dead either. Because Moses and the prophets are all about a man who's going to be resurrected from the dead. Here then Jesus has told a very troubling story with a very potent point. Jesus is inviting the religious leaders to reconsider their view of money. Not so different than the father in Luke 15 who went out to his son and said, please come into the party, please. This is right that we're celebrating your younger brother. Jesus here pleading with the religious leaders saying, it's not too late. Reconsider what you think about money because it soon will be too late. Hear then the point. Listen carefully and repent. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write that down. Listen carefully and repent. That's what Jesus wanted for the religious leaders. And do you see how tender Jesus is being to both prodigals and religious leaders? Everybody gets a chance with Jesus. 
Now again, in a story like this, we can get sidetracked with, well, is this actually what the afterlife's going to be like? And, and, and are those who've gone before us in either like eternal suffering and anguish or, or by Abraham? And is there a chasm? And can you see and talk to each other? And, and Jeremy, I've got so many questions about this. Again, we don't want to push Jesus' story too far. We don't want to push it too far. But as one pastor said, Christ has pictured Hades as a place where the unspeakable torment of hell had already begun. And among the miseries featured here are an unquenchable flame, the fire never dies, an accusing conscience. The rich man is feeling guilty for what he did. He fed by undying memories of a lost opportunity and permanent, irreversible separation from God and everything good. That's sobering, isn't it? And like I've heard it said, maybe there's actually not fire in hell. Maybe there's not. But then it's way worse than fire. But then... How were the religious leaders to respond? How should they listen and repent? In the words of Edwards, a commentator, to hear Moses and the prophet means to hear the admonishment not to make wealth one's highest good, but to use wealth for good, especially for the poor whom God favors. This is what they should have done. A religious leader should have listened to Luke 16, should have gone home to their spouse if they were married and said, honey, we got to take our six digits and we got to start investing it in the people whom God favors, the poor and the powerless, the Lazaruses in our lives. Right now, let's make a plan and we got to give a bunch of this money away. Having then seen how the prodigal was to be shrewd in stewarding riches for eternity, and now having seen how Jesus is offering the older brothers, so to speak, the religious leaders, the chance to repent for not using wealth the way the law and the prophets describe, we now see, church, do we not, how deeply spiritual the issue of money is to Jesus. And I know we all have an allergic reaction when somebody starts trying to tell us how to use money. We now see that finances are an excellent indicator of your spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity seems to me to be a lot like our reflexes. You ask a group like this, how many of you have above average reflexes? And although only a few percentage of the whole population has above average reflexes, all of us go, oh yeah, I've got a great reflexes. My reflexes are fantastic. And I think that's the way it is with spiritual maturity. I don't know that any of us are really as spiritually mature as we'd like to be, myself included. But the moment you ask, you know, if nobody looking, how many of you are actually really spiritually mature? Oh, yeah, I'm spiritually mature. Because we've conflated knowledge as if just knowing stuff makes us mature. And what Luke is saying is, well, let me see your checkbooks. Show me what you've got. Let me see that quicken report on where your money's going. I'll tell you if you've got some spiritual maturity in this category. What then should we do, church, with Luke 16? It brings us to application. Here's the final point. We want to bring it all home. Mill Creek and money. Mill Creek and money. First, for those here who are former prodigals, you ran away from God. And in his tender mercy, 
you have repented of your sin and you have come home and the father ran to you and he put his robe on you and he gave you his ring and he said, you are my child. And you find in yourself this idea like, of course I'm a Christian because I finally find forgiveness. All that guilt I carried, all that sin and shame, he took it on the cross. If you're here, you're a former prodigal, here's your next step. Steward your money wisely. Steward your money wisely. That is clearly your application from this text. Because look, friends, someday I don't imagine that Jesus is going to be in heaven bumping the songs. It's all about the Benjamins. But if we were to ask him, are the finances we have important? Jesus would say, yes, the finances you have are important. It's not everything, but it is something. And Jesus would further reiterate, there is something true that the notorious B.I.G. says, for Christians, more money is more problems. And money is the root of evil. That's a biblical concept, whether that song knew it or not. And so, church, we're being called to, shrewd, to shrewdly steward our finances. And so we must use our money in such a way to store up treasure in heaven. I know I shared this quote a few weeks ago, but I think it is so helpful. From Randy Alcorn, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. This just in, you can take nothing with you from the earth. I know we have a hard time believing that. Of course, the pharaohs didn't believe it, but truth is you can take nothing with you. Uh, ten out of ten people die, and they take nothing with them to eternity. I read that somewhere in a report. But you can send it on ahead. So steward wisely. And while money is the primary object in this text, you must steward your time and talent as well. Now, don't be that guy who says, well, I'm going to give the church my, my time and my talents, and that's actually very valuable. Actually, in my job, I get paid seven dollars an hour, and I'm giving that to the church, so I'm actually not going to give any money. Don't be that guy. You're just justifying your golden calf and trying to use the Bible to do it. You're just like the religious leader, so don't be that guy. But, but do steward your time wisely. Manage well what you've been given because you get this right. It's all God's. Whatever's in your checking account right now is not really yours. And your time, it's not really yours. And the talents you've been giving, been given. Like, like someday in eternity, if, if God says, Jeremy, um, tell me, like, what, what, what did you do well there? And I say, man, I had these talents. And I really, man, I had these great talents. And God's going to say, well, I gave you those talents, whatever they are. God gave you your talents. We want to steward them wisely. We're prodigals. We've been generously given so much. And you don't want to be like the rich man in that first story who ran out of time. Because if we could talk to that guy, he would realize, he would realize that money isn't as important as stewarding my time. And that's the same with the, with the second. Time is short. And if you realize how short your life is, you would steward your money differently. I'm convinced if we could take a time machine a million years into the future and we're sitting there in glory, all of us would say, I wish I gave more away. I am so convinced. So let's borrow from that and let's actually do something today with all that God has given us. Let's send it on ahead. We have such little time here. Application two, for those of you who are like the self-righteous religious leaders, 
You are like the older brothers from Luke 15, and you have all of this self-righteousness, and you thought there is no problem, and you've justified and put on the Bible everything you wanted to say. Your application from the text, believe Moses and the prophets. Believe Moses and the prophets. That's what you got to do. See, throughout Luke's gospel, he's gone to great lengths to show us Jesus is really the hero every Old Testament prophet points to. Jesus really is the one that Abraham was looking for, the one that Moses and the prophets are pointing to. And Luke wants us to have confidence. Luke wants to convince us of his great argument through his entire 24-chapter book. This is his argument. This is what Luke wants us to believe. We can have confidence Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. You close Luke's book and you go, I believe it. He is the long-awaited Savior. Luke would go, yes, that's what I wanted. So you need to believe Moses and the prophets and allow your self-righteousness to melt into confidence in Christ's righteousness. Okay, pastor, but how, how would I know if I'm repenting of self-righteousness and believing Moses and the prophets? A litmus story from Jesus' second a litmus test from Jesus' second story, you would generously care for the poor. And you'd be quick to care for any Lazarus in your life. This quote says it better than I can. Every person is given some Lazarus at the door. Every person is a test case as to whether we will use those possessions rightly or wrongly, with love or self-indulgence. Bringing God's will into the matter or leaving it out? Will we or will we not bring into time the considerations of eternity? That's the question. See, friend, you would be demonstrating spiritual maturity if you repented of selfishness and you began helping the hurting. For what Jesus says is true, you can't serve God and money. It's one or the other. So when God brings a Lazarus to your door, perhaps even today, perhaps you go out to eat and you notice the Spirit saying, there's the Lazarus. How are you going to care for them? Oh, church, let us do it. How will you respond? Because look, at the end of the day, God's not really after your money. He has it all. He's not after your money. He's after your heart. So release this idea that money is mine and I've earned it and God must be pleased with me because I have such a big bank account. And while it's risky, entrust all of it to God the Father. And if you're sitting here thinking, but I am no fool, pastor. How can I trust? How can I trust that God really is out for my good? By looking at Jesus. By looking at Jesus. Because Jesus, he became like Lazarus in our story, didn't he? Lazarus, in our story, he didn't talk. He suffered. He was left alone. He didn't get any of the good gifts. And Christ left glory, and he became like a Lazarus, friend of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. So we're not asking you to be a fool by entrusting yourself to Jesus. We're asking you to look at Jesus and realize he emptied his bank account for you. He's not asking you to do anything he hasn't done. And when you look at Christ then, 
It changes your heart and helps you want to live for eternity. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 gets to the heart of this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus at the garden under intense anguish. Jesus at the cross. Jesus at the end abandoned. Jesus choosing to be a Lazarus. So you and I might be able to receive the gift of eternal glory. We, who've been so selfish, like that rich man in the second story, are offered a chance to change. So do you see, this isn't a trick. It's not a bait and switch. Jesus emptied his bank account for your sake. Steward your money wisely, church. Believe Moses and the prophet. Invest in eternity now. And find yourself free of the golden calf of money, 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 money. Will you pray with me? And now, Father, Luke 16 is tough, especially for any of us who love money. So change our heart. And thank you that you do provide what you require. We pray that we would send our money on ahead invested in Lazarus's that you've brought into our life. We pray you do this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.